0: Romans chapter 7, and we may, depending on how I do this, be done with Romans chapter 7 in about four weeks. she will be like, wow, that's unbelievable. All right, Romans chapter 7. Depends on how many difficulties you run into. Romans chapter 7, starting in verse 1. Romans 7, 1. Or do you not know, brothers... Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. For while we were living living in the flesh, our sinful passions, aroused by the law, were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve not under the old written code but in the new life of the Spirit. Let me pray. Lord, we ask for your divine assistance, illumination, as we read your text and try to understand it and try to apply it to our life and times. Lord, we ask that you would give us minds to understand, give us eyes to see, ears to hear, and hearts that rejoice in your truth. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, so much of the world is fixated on principles to live by. In fact, I would argue the whole world is fixated on finding principles to live by. You can find that very clearly in the fact that you can walk into any bookstore and be overwhelmed by self-help literature, can't you? You can turn on the radio dial at any time... And hear someone preaching, or what they would call talking, about self-help issues, right? How to fix your life. You can go to conferences for it. You can turn on your television and hear talk shows in which they have numerous different people telling you how to get your life straightened out, can't you? It's a constant focus on what do I do to fix me? And if I'm not super interested in fixing me, what do I do to fix those around me? (laughs) So much of the Christian church today is also fixated on principles to live by. We can say it's the people in the world out there, but I want you to understand it is also us. We're fixated on principles to live by. We see it in our biggest selling Christian books in recent years. Can you name a couple of them? I'll name two. And I'm not trying to equiv- equivocate to these, these two books to one another. The Purpose Driven Life is one. It is a book entirely directed at principles so that you can glorify God. I'll tell you a second major selling book is Your Best Life Now and its sequel, Become a Better You, by Joel Osteen. Now, I don't want to equivocate Rick Warren with Joel Osteen because it's not a fair comparison to Rick Warren. Not fair to him at all. But the commonality between the books is they're completely and totally focused on principles to become a better person. Here's how you do it. One for the glory of God, Rick Warren, and the other for the glory of man, or yourself, Joel Osteen. We see it in our worship services. You know how we see it in simple ways? Through our obsession with taking notes, for example. Right? Even bulletin inserts that have a a line with a little blank where you fill in the relevant material. And it usually has three to five important principles that are generally placed up up on an overhead and you fill them in because you want to make sure you have all the principles right. The pastor is more concerned in that instant, and I've been guilty of this, is more concerned that you get the three to five principles than that you receive the grace of God in the sermon. And so we're fixated on this. We see it in our theologically uninformed clergy and congregations who are often more interested in holy living, which isn't a bad thing, but they're more interested in holy living than in knowing the truth about God. Because they're more interested in what God wants them to do than they are interested in who He is. We see it in the current push away from theologically deep sermons and toward conversations. Small group discussions. And training our congregations to be self-feeders. Because we want, we want to do what we believe is important. And what we believe is important is what we do. And what input we provide not what we receive from God. We see it in the desire for our churches to move away from a worship service at all and towards Sunday church project days. Have you guys seen this now? It's the latest thing. Have a Sunday church project day. Take a day off a month to do a project. Because we believe what the world needs to see is they need to see what we do. Not to receive what God will do through the foolishness of the gospel being preached. We believe what's important is what we do. We see it in the fact that far more people attend conferences on how to fix their marriages, how to raise their children, and how to become the person God wants them to be than people who attend conferences on the person and work of Jesus Christ or the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. Or the doctrine of anything for that matters. For all that matters. Some of these practices are good. I mean, I'm not shooting down small groups. And I'm not shooting down serving the community. And I'm not shooting down going to conferences on how to fix your marriage or your children or anything else. Don't get me wrong. That isn't my point. My point is that we take these principles and make them and make them ultimate. And when we do... They're completely bankrupt. You hear what I'm saying? When we make those things ultimate, they're completely bankrupt. We make them almost into principles by which we can be our own self-saviors, which we can make our self-holiness. If I just do these things, I'll be holy. No, you won't. You do not become holy through principles. You become holy through a person. And that person is Jesus Christ. You see, everything I've mentioned is another form of attempting to be a lawkeeper. Every one of those things I talked about, whether it's the Mosaic law or it's the general law that we all know we should live by, we're all trying to be holy and accepted before God by law keeping. instead of being gospel receivers. We prioritize our time, reading, money, energy to serve the law as if the law is the goal of history. If the law is not the goal of history, Christ. Christ is the goal of history. John Piper says this, the law is not the goal of history, Christ is the goal of history. The law is not the goal of your life, Christ is the goal of your life. Christ did not come into history to lead us to the law. The law came into history to lead us to Christ. The law is not the goal of Christ. Christ is the goal of the law. Marriage is not for the sake of wedding vows. Wedding vows are for the sake of marriage. What's Piper saying? And what am I trying to communicate to you by using his quote? What I'm trying to communicate is that we have confused the means with the ends. We're constantly attempting to be our own saviors through keeping the law as if that was the ultimate master to be served. Rather than trusting Jesus as our savior, knowing the law serves to point us to him. That's what it exists for. Now, I'm not saying that learning and practicing certain principles is bad. I'm just saying it's secondary. And when it's made primary, you miss the God who will save you and sanctify you. That's our problem. When we make principles primary, we end up in slavery to them, and the slave master is cruel. And impossible to serve. And what Paul wants the Roman Christians to know is that the law once enslaved them and was their condemnation, but they died to the law with Christ. They were freed from the law in Christ and now through their relationship with Christ, they are empowered to bear fruit. The fruit the law required of them in the first place. I want you to hear that. What's important is what Christ did and does in us, not what we do. And if you want to keep the law, which we should want to keep because it's holy, righteous, and good, if we want to keep it, we have to die to it first. As long as it is our Lord and our Master, we will fail to keep it. And it is a cruel Lord and master and it will give us what we have earned which is hell. So if we want to keep the law, we have to first we have to first trust him who is the end or the goal of the law, Christ. For he has kept the law for us and he will empower us to keep it by freeing us from its mastery. That sounds really upside down, doesn't it? Well, look at the text. I want you to see that Paul understood that through dying of the law and being married to Christ, that's how we're going to bear fruit for God. That's how we'll keep the law. Look at what he says in chapter 7, verse 1. Or do you not know, brothers? Again, he starts with this phrase, do you not know? He said it in chapter 6, verse 3. Do you not know? And he says, don't you know? You should know this. You ought to know this. You ought to know this again and again and again. He's emphasizing the idea that we have to know something. What do we have to know? We have to know the truth. We have to know the gospel. We have to know what God has divinely inspired and given to us in his word. That's why Romans 12, 1 and 2, when it says to, therefore, in view of God's mercy, offer your body as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. What does it say? Do not be conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed. How are you transformed? By the renewing of your mind? You have to know the truth. Paul says, do you not know? He expects that they know. Don't you know, brothers? Know what? Well, Well, look, who are the brothers? He says, do you not know, brothers? For I'm speaking to those who know the law. Who's he talking about here? Who are these brothers? You know, there are a lot of commentators who argue that these brothers are Jews. Christian Jews, that's who he's speaking to here. I don't think that's true. I think he's actually talking to Jews and Gentiles who are Christians here. Why? I think he's talking to Jews and Gentiles who are Christians because in this letter he's writing to the church at Rome. All of them. Which, chapter 1 is clear, includes Jews and non-Jews or Gentiles. Includes both. Further, when Paul wants to point out by brothers that he means just Jews, in chapter 9, verse 3, he says this. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers. What brothers? Not all the Christians in the Roman church. Who's he talking about? He says the next phrase. My kinsmen, according to the flesh. They're Israelites. And he starts to identify them. He puts a modifier when he says brothers and he's referring to physical Jews. Here he's just talking about the church. Do you not know church? Do you not know brothers and sisters in Christ? Do you not know? Do you not know those who know the law? Interesting phrase, huh? What does he mean by those who know the law? The church. There's an expectation in his mind that the church knows the law. The question is, if if these are Jews and Gentiles, some commentators would say, well, you know what, we think it's Jews and Gentiles, but then the law can't be the Mosaic law, can't be the Old Testament law, because Gentiles wouldn't have known that. The Jews would have known it because in Israel they learned about it, and when they became Christians they still would have known the Old Testament, but Gentiles in Rome wouldn't have known about the Old Testament and known the law. What a lot of commentators seem to overlook is the fact that Gentiles when they were converted to Christianity, were immediately taught the Old Testament. Why? Because the only Bible they had. There wasn't a New Testament at that time. Paul's When Paul's writing Romans, he's writing what? The New Testament. That's what they studied was the Old Testament. I think there's some actual evidence in the text that he's talking about the Mosaic Law anyway. I don't think he's talking about law generally. I think he's talking about the Mosaic Law. If you look at verse 4... The law in verse 4, he says this again, and 6, if you put these together, Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ, so you may belong to one another. And he goes on, and look at verse 6, he tries to lay that out a little bit more. But now we're released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve not under the old written code. It has to be talking about the Old Testament. Second, The law in Romans 5.20 when he says, now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. That law is clearly the Mosaic law. And it's the basis for the objection that happens in chapter 6, verse 15, which says this, what then are we to sin because we're not under law but under grace? Paul says in Romans 5.20 that we were under the law and when the law came in and enslaved us to it, it showed us how sinful we are and it incited us to more sin. But where sin abounded, grace abounded all the more. And now we're under grace, freed from the law. And someone comes back and says, well then Paul, if we're under grace, and not under the law anymore, then aren't we free to sin it up? That's what Paul's dealing with. That's the objection he's dealing with. Number thir- the third reason I think that's the case is the law in verse 7 is clearly the Mosaic law of chapter 7. What then shall we say? That the law is sin? It's got to be the same law he's talking about in verse 1. And what he goes on, it says this, By no means, yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had said, You shall not covet. That's a direct quotation of the Old Testament law. I think it's possible that Paul is talking about law in a general sense. You know, we all know the law in some sense. Because every time we go to sin, what happens? Our conscience kind of is aroused, right? We realize this could be wrong. And then once we participate in it, it's like, okay, I'm feeling guilty. But then it's easier to do it the next time because we start to sear our conscience, right? And then we can do it again and again. And pretty soon we start feeling kind of good about it. But at the beginning, we know if there's something wrong with it. And Paul could be discussing that in a general sense, but I think it's more likely that he's answering the objection that's being, a, that's being leveled against the gospel he's preaching. Why? Because he wants to take this gospel to Spain, and he wants the church at Rome to support his taking this gospel to Spain, and he wants to make sure that they understand that all the objections being brought against him aren't true. All the accusations are being made are false. The Jews had a very positive view of the law, didn't they? Just read Psalm 119 sometime. I delight in your law. I love your law. On your law, I meditate day and night. The Old Testament has a very positive view of the law. It was seen as God's grace to his people. Yet Paul comes along, and in Romans, starts saying stuff like, the law just serves to condemn us. By the works of the law, no Human beings shall be justified. Romans 3.20, right? Comes along and says that the law causes sin to abound. But when the law came in, in verse 20 of chapter 5, it came into what? Increase the trespass. It made my sin abound more. He says in verse 5 of chapter 7, while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law. Did you hear that? The law actually aroused my sinful passions. It made me a bigger sinner. And then he says that we're no longer under the oppressive reign of the law. We're no longer under the oppressive reign of sin. And Paul equivocates being under the law with being under sin. Think of that. Chapter 6, verse 14. Think of what the Jew who hears Paul say that thinks. What did you just say, Paul? Did you just say to be under the mastery of sin is in your mind equivalent to being under the mastery of the law? What are you saying about the law? These are the objections Paul's having to deal with. Because he has a completely different view of the law than what they were used to. And they want to know, are you saying the law isn't good? Paul says, no, I'm not saying the law isn't good. Are you saying it's sin? Of course not. Look at verse 7. What shall we say then? That the law is sin? By no means. He's going to explain it. He wants you to understand the Christian's relationship to the law. But he wants you to understand first and foremost that the law as a master is a cruel master. That it binds you to sinfulness. Sinfulness. And that not only does it bind you to sinfuls, it incites sin in you. It is not until you're free of it as a master that you can actually understand why it's holy, righteous, and good. Because if you're under it and it's your master, you don't feel like it's so holy, righteous, and good, do you? You feel like it's killing you, don't you? Paul's answering the objection that's brought against his view of the law on two levels in Romans 7. We're going to look at both of them. The first level is he's arguing that his gospel encourages law-keeping. Which, no, I'm not saying that my gospel encourages lawlessness. It encourages law-keeping. Because in it, the power to keep the law is given through the Holy Spirit. He's also saying a second thing. He's saying, you've misunderstood what I've been saying about the law i'm not condemning the law i'm saying that our sin takes the good thing the law and then volleys it into more sin we turn it into a savior by which we save ourselves we list principles if i can just do these things and we can push god completely out Completely misunderstanding that the goal of the law is to lead us to God, not to replace him. So as we continue the next few weeks, you're going to see Paul's theology of, of the relationship between the Christian and the law. You're going to see his theology of it. But today I just want to focus on this first example he gives in Romans one or 7, 1-4. through four. What does Paul say when he says this? Look at verse 1. Do not know, brothers, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives. It's binding on him only as long as he lives. Hear that? What a weird statement. That's a strength. The law is binding on you only as long. What's the point, Paul? Here's the point. As long as you're alive, as one who was born under sin, right? Because you guys were born in sin, right? As a result of being fallen in Adam, Romans 5, 12 and following. You're born in sin under Adam. As one who was born in that state, you were born under the law and under the power of sin. These things were your master. And as long as you were in that state, it binds you. It holds you. You're in slavery to it. But the moment you die you're free from that. The moment you die, the law is no longer your master. That's what Paul's saying. Don't you know that? When you die, you're free from the law. The law can't rule a dead person, can it? When you die, you're free from it. And what he wants you to understand is that when you die and you finally get free from it, then you can finally live for Christ by keeping the law. So he's going to give this example. He says this in verse 2. He gives an illustration. He wants you to understand what this looks like. Thus, a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. That's, I mean... Right off the bat, you're going, wow, Paul. I mean, I guess you're getting it right. That's how some women feel in marriage. Can't wait until he dies so she can be free from the law of having to be married to him. In the Old Testament, actually, it permitted men to divorce their wives, but not women to divorce their husbands, interestingly enough. Based on the law, the women were um, bound to stay in the marriage. Until he was dead. That's why some people say, I won't divorce him. I'll kill him. Right? (laughs) But, I'm serious. I've heard that before. And the law binds you until you're dead. And Paul's saying, so does marriage. The only way to get free from the law is death. The only way to get free from the bounds of marriage is death. He goes on in verse 3, he says this, Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law. And if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. In other words, what Paul says is, you're married to the law, and you're bound to it. And until your husband dies, you're in that relationship. You can't be married to another What screws people up here, commentators, when you read them... ...is understanding verse 2 and 3. Why? Because this illustration really throws people for a loop. Because you're saying, wait a minute... ...Paul's saying here that I'm the wife, right? I'm the wife, I want to be remarried... ...because right now I'm bound by my husband, the law. And then he says, until your husband dies, you're not free. Wait a minute, if I'm the wife and my husband's the law... The law doesn't die. In verse 1, he just said, I'm supposed to die to be free. Now he's saying, the husband's supposed to... What's going on, Paul? Here's the point. This is not an allegory. Paul is not expecting you to make a relationship between every point he's making here and his main point. He just wants you to get the main point. It's an illustration. There's really only two main points he wants you to get, and that's this. Marriage is a Bound, that's only, as you guys know, according to law, only broken by death. You all know that when you get up and give your vows, right? What do you say? Till death do us part. Now, you can divorce her and go and remarry, you're in adultery the rest of your life. She can divorce you and go and remarry, she's in adultery the rest of her life. There's a couple of exceptions in the biblical record we're not going to go over this morning. Here's the point Paul's making. The point he's making is this. You're stuck in that relationship. You're bound to it until you die. The same thing is true of your relationship to the law. That's the only parallel he's making. He's not trying to say the law is your husband and you're the wife and you can't wait for your husband to die because you're not waiting for the law to die. The law isn't going to die. You're going to die. The parallel he's making is the law says that marriage, you're bound in it until death. And guess what? You're bound to the law until death. And until death, you can't remarry as a woman until your husband dies. And as a person, you cannot remarry until the law dies. But when the law dies, you will belong to another. What's he talking about? He makes an application of it in verse 4. Here it is. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. We died to the law through the body of Christ. When Jesus died on the cross, we died with him. That's when it happened. That's when it was accomplished. It was applied when you believed. It was accomplished when he died. When he died, we died with him. Applied to us when we believe. And we, when he died, he died to the law, and so did we. That's what Paul's saying. We died to the law. He paid the penalty for not keeping the law that's due to us. He broke the power or the reign of the law over us. That's what Paul's saying. Christ did it through his body, through his death on the cross. We're no longer under the law. It's not our Lord anymore. And as a master, the law required much of us and could not provide it. In fact, not only could the law not provide what it required, the law actually was used by our sinfulness to incite more sin in us. The law actually, I want you to hear this, the law actually damned us to lawlessness. Hear that? When we were under its reign. Christ Died, And with him, we died. And as a result of that, we've been freed. We've been freed from the bonds of that marriage or that slavery to the law. And now we're free. For what? For what? Look what he says. In verse 4. Likewise, my brothers, you've also died in the law through the body of Christ, so that, here's the point, so that you may belong to another. See hear that? So you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead. We're now married to Christ. Through our dying with Christ, we now belong to another. He bought and paid for us with a price. His own life. And we're His. We're now married to Christ. We died to the law... so that we could be married to Christ. Why should we die to the law to be married to Christ? I mean, why does Paul say this happened? Why did God have us die with Christ to the law... so we could be married to Him? What's the point of it? What what is He trying to accomplish? Look what it says in verse 4 at the end after he says, have been raised from the dead, in order that, here's the purpose for it, in order that we may bear fruit for God. Hear that? Christ died on the cross. And when He died, we died with Him to the law. It is no longer our master. It is no longer our slave owner. We died from its rule and reign. And when we died with Him, we were married to Him. We now belong to Him. We belong to another. And He did all that so we could bear fruit for God. He did all that so God would be honored and glorified through the fruit that we bear. In other words, Christ kept the law for us He died to the law for us so that we could die to the law with Him and we could keep the law with Him so God would be honored. So God would be glorified. You have to die in order to live biblically. To die in order to live. The old man has to be put to death so that the new man can live for Christ. Christ accomplished that on the cross for us. If you want to obey the law, you've got to die to it first and be married to Christ. In other words, if you want to get your life in order, you have to die to the attempt to get your life in order. And you have to trust Jesus to do it in you. Hear that? And for you. You have to stop buying all the self-help books. And stop buying all the Christian garbage that gives you lists of things that you need to do to get your life in order. And you have to start investing in knowing the person of Jesus. Nothing will change you as much as knowing Christ. When you see Him for who He is in all of His majesty and glory and holiness and justice and graciousness and love and you contemplate Him and what He's done for you, you will be different. Because you will die with Him by trusting Him. You will die with Him to the law. And you will live again to righteousness. He, as your husband, and I know guys, you don't always love that imagery, but He, as your husband, will sanctify you. Ephesians chapter 5 actually says this. We are looking so hard to be holy and we don't trust that God will do this in us by trusting Christ. Listen what it says. Husbands, love your wives. This is Ephesians chapter 5 verse 25. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Why? Why? That he might sanctify her, that she could sanctify herself Know that He might sanctify her. Who sanctifies the church? Christ does. Not a bunch of principles you come up with. Christ does. He sanctifies His bride. That He might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the Word, so that He might present the church to Himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy without blemish. Christ sanctifies His church. He makes her holy. He changes her. How does it happen? We know Him. We see Him. We think about Him. We contemplate Him in His Word and through listening to the Word being preached and through singing songs about Him and through praying the truth to Him, we think about Him. And when we think about Him, we're changed. Because we trust that He does it. He started it. And he completed it on the cross. Do you hear that? He doesn't complete it later. He started it and he completed it on the cross. It's true. Now Paul's saying, live in light of it. Trust him. He'll do it. He's already made it true of you. If you're in him. Now all you have to do is trust him to work out what's already true. Because He will. That's why Paul can say, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. That's something I do, okay? And then he comes right off of that and says, for it's God who's at work in you, both to will and to do His good pleasure. Trust Jesus. He'll work in you. He sanctifies His church. Now, I've said all that, and I'm going to say this. There's something you need to do. Okay? I don't want to confuse you But it really starts and ends with with Christ as the goal. And the contemplation of Him. And the love of Him. Trusting Him is what changes you. It starts and ends there. But He provides us means by which to do that. He says, look, I want you to grow in your understanding and knowledge of me. I want you to grow in your trust and love for me. Because I do everything and I'm going to give you means by which you do that. Unfortunately, we usually turn these means into the ends. Instead of believing Christ uses these to change us, we think we use these to change us. And so, I give you all that, and now I'm going to give you something to do. And it's going to be the exact opposite of what the world tells you to do. Right now, in Christian spirituality, it has become exceedingly popular. It's true in worldly spirituality, it's true in Christian spirituality. It has become exceedingly popular to say this, you need to contemplate more. Just contemplate. Contemplate what? Just contemplate more. I hear this in spiritual disciplines books. You need to contemplate more. You need to be silent more. You need to seek solitude more. So silence, solitude, and contemplation. You guys heard those things being popular? Christian circles, spirituality? Let, let me say this. that is the, Those three things are the exact opposite of what God gives us as means to grow in Him. The exact opposite. They are 180 degrees incorrect. Taking you in the wrong direction. Don't do those things. I'm going to challenge you not to seek out silence, solitude, and contemplation. Don't do it. Here, yeah, need an amen now and again. I'm going to tell you to do this instead. Meditate on the word. The Bible tells you to meditate, not to contemplate. To meditate is to think about what God has said. To contemplate is to think about what you think. Who cares what you think? You're wrong. You screwed you up in the first place. You're not going to fix you. Right? Meditate on the Word. Christ has given it to us. Second, the Bible never tells us to be silent. It says to petition Him in prayer. Pray. Petition Him. You don't sit silently contemplating, hoping God will give you a Word. You read the Word... And you pray. You pray it back to Him. You petition Him and ask Him for the things He's promised. He rejoices in being trusted and asked for the things He's promised to give. You want to honor God? Trust what He says here and ask Him for it. Third, you don't need to be in solitude. You need to be in community. The Bible doesn't say, now that you're a Christian, go off to a monastery contemplate, be in silence, and don't talk to anybody and become a nice, well-rounded Christian. It's not what it says. What it says is, you grow through the body of Christ, through the people in the community. Because it's easy to think I'm doing pretty well when it's just me. But when other people are around me and I see things that they're doing, I'm encouraged by that. And they serve me in some way or speak the word to me in some way, I grow because of it. Or they challenge me because of sin in some area of my life, I'm changed as a result of it. Sometimes they see things in me I don't see. I'll tell you, generally, other people are a better barometer of who you are than you are. Because the person we're best at deceiving is ourself. So you get in community. That's why we participate in the church. That's why God gave it to us. God didn't give you a bungalow in the desert. He gave you a church. For a reason. That's why I say strong community is what you need to pursue. These are means God has given us to grow in our understanding and our love for and meditation on Jesus that changes us. We must be confident that Christ has not only saved us, but that he'll sanctify us and he secures us. He's not only freed us from the law and sin, but he's empowered us to keep the law and grow in righteousness. Christ has not only married us, but he provides the wisdom of what it means to be a faithful wife and the power to be one. He's done it all. It's simple. So I hate to tell you this. I love to tell you this, and I hate to tell you this all at the same time. It's a lot simpler than we think. It's just not easy. It's just not easy. It's simple. You just trust Jesus. Do what he says. It's it. It's it. It's all, the whole thing. Is the Christian life really that simple? Yes, it is. Is it easy? No. Because everything in me wants to convolute it and make it complicated. Right? Everything in me wants to save me. But it's simple. Just trust Him. That's it. Let me pray. Lord, we thank You for Jesus and the fact that He changes us. The fact that He has worked so powerfully on our behalf, on the cross. Not only living the righteous life that we failed to, but paying the penalty for not fulfilling the law that we participated in on our behalf. Or we're thankful for that. Thankful that He died to the law and that on that day He accomplished our redemption, our freedom from slavery to the law and sin. And Lord, that In Him, we are free to live righteously, to see the law as holy and righteous and good because it points us to You, tells us who You are, helps us to rejoice in You. Pray that we would. In Jesus' name, Amen. We're going to take communion and uh, the guys will come forward, some of them, and we'll pass out um, communion to you all during the next couple songs. Uh, After the second song, during the third song, we'll pass out our offering. We encourage you to participate in those times with us. Um, Communion is not for you if you're not a believer. Uh, If you want to become a believer, if you're still in slavery to your sin, and you want to be freed from that, come talk to me. We'll talk to you about...